Hello, folks, and welcome to this week's edition of the Tech London podcast. Um, while we, as Jonathan said, run over to techlondon.io and join the the thousands of people in the Tech London scene in the uh, in the Slack channel, there I am. I am. I have someone very untechy with me today, and her name is Judy. So, Judy, what are you known for, and what do you know? What would you like to be known for? Oh, I am so pleased to be described as untechy, especially with your audience. Uh, so my background is that I was a publisher and I built a company, Piatkis Books. And over 25 years, we grew this company from a startup in my bedroom when I was pregnant with my second child to become one of the most highly regarded and well-established independent publishing companies globally. So uh, that's my story in a nutshell. Is, is that it? That I was um, so possibly generally one of the. It's going to be very hard not to fanboy it through this thing because um, one one of my uh, uh, good reads over the lockdown was was your book, and I remember you used to come to our tech map and London bloggers meetups and stuff like that, and which must have been like ten years ago or something, and. Um, and then, and then this book arrived and I feel like after all that time, I just, I really got to know you, know your career through your book. Cause I knew you had a publishing company and I knew a few of the people, but as I read through, um, like publishing Mary Berry in the 1980s and Dave Allen's getting things done and John Kabat-Zinn and, um, Daniel Steele, I never read in Daniel Steele, but I know who she is. It was like, oh my goodness. You know, this is it's like having a you know, Virgin Records or Island Records or something. So what, as I was reading that, I was, two things that intrigued me is um, how, as as the whole world was like working from their houses, how there's there's a bit where you describe being in your house in Wanstead. And I, I can't remember the figure, but there was like a very impressive figure of the first year of turnover from a, from, like from your dining room table in Wanstead without any internet. I just thought, you know, we're, there's me complaining about working at home now. And there you were in 1979 or whatever it was. Um, what, can, can you say a little bit about that? I'm not sure what my question is, Judy, but I'm just dumbfounded by how much you achieved without an internet connection. And it, it certainly stopped me complaining about my circumstances in lockdown. Well, um, thank you. Um, so, um, I started uh, my first business um, with a partner and um, we weren't married. He lived, actually, he was living with his parents. Uh, I had just got married and we used to speak on the phone every day. Um, and every now and again, we'd meet and we'd get in the car sometimes and go and visit our sales, um, our sale, our, our major customers. So um, after he and I worked together for four and a half years, um, I was living in uh, Wanstead then, um, we split up and I sold my half of the company to him. And there I was, um, by now we'd moved to Loughton in Essex, there I was in Loughton expecting my second child, one child already, and I thought, what shall I do? I've got some money and I loved being a publisher, so I thought I'd have a go on my own. And I also needed the money. We needed the money to look after my daughter who had disabilities. Um, and we knew that it was always going to be harder for her and for us as a family. 
So I bought myself the very best typewriter at the time. And it sounds so ludicrous thinking about it now. But I do want to remind you that it wasn't until the end of the 1990s that most companies were fully computerized. In fact, some large organizations didn't even get computerized until the beginning of this century. Um, I can think of HSBC Bank for one. Um, so we've only all been working with computers about 20 years. So it wasn't totally surprising just to have a typewriter and a telephone and letters and a fax machine. And um, one of the things which everybody forgets is that when you've got emails and everybody can communicate with you, they do. But when it's hard to communicate with people, you don't get so many communications. So actually, now I think about it, that probably made it easier to work from home. I got up every day and I was totally focused on what I wanted to do for the period while the nanny was looking after the kids. And I just totally focused on buying books finding a warehouse and creating a first what publishers call a list of a range of books um, that we were going to be selling to libraries. So in a way, there were no distractions. We didn't have mobile phones, so you weren't distracted. You were, nobody was checking the news. It probably wasn't even 24 hours. Um, so I think that's a reminder to everybody of how much clutter we have around us all the time and how difficult it is to navigate our way through it every day. Uh, I, that, I, that, that, that whirlwind is, is definitely something I'm uh, always working against. Um, as you were talking there, I was almost like, I, I, I felt peaceful about how, uh, how, how that time, how that time must've been. Um, what is it? So the other thing I want to get into quickly is the, you know, looking, looking back on the list of topics and stuff, um, and, and authors you, you got hold of and, and in, in the, in the book where you said, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was Nora. You said, I, you know, I really liked her stuff and we took a risk um just because we liked her i think you even begin the chapter like sometimes sometimes something comes along and you think it's a great idea and you're like let's go for this and see what happens and it just ends up happening even though statistically it doesn't look like it's going to and like look i think i think i want to phrase the question is like looking back on the decisions you made how did you how did you know what to do or what what would what advice would you give to people who are listening to this who have a company and they're like, oh, shall I do app A or app B or shall I go with smart cities or five G? What what is it? How how do you organise your head when you're in the middle of it all? I think it's harder now, so I just want to support you there and say it's harder now because there's more choice all the time. Um, but I think. Firstly, when you're making major decisions, you've got to find out as much information as you possibly can. So if you've got a company, you've got to make a profit. That is completely straightforward. If you don't make a profit, you're not going to be able to pay your staff. And it doesn't actually matter how much money someone else has invested in you. If you don't use that money, that, that money wisely, you're not going to have a company. So if you're running a company, money has to be the foremost concern, certainly at this time in the history of our society, um, because it's essential to grow your business. And especially if you're building a platform, because you're going to have demands all the time. 
So when it comes to actually what you're going to do with the money and which direction is best to go in, then you've got to get as much information as possible. So you've got to do your market research. You've got to find out as much as possible about the people that you want to sell to and about the medium and the channels through which you're going to target that audience. And as the information starts to come in, then you're able to refine your decision making because you will be able to exclude some possibilities and you will be able to focus on others which look more promising. And what was, um, how long do you spend in that researching process? Did you ever, because I, I, I love research, I love research more than work. Um, and like, did, did you ever set your, like, you know, in the middle of the 80s, did you ever go, right, I'm going to give myself two weeks to work out about these books? Or like, how, how did you, how do you actually organize that process? Is it, was there, was there a system you set up or was it again a, a kind of gut feel thing? As a company, we started um, publishing books for libraries and we would publish a mixture of books that we knew we could sell and occasional books that we would take a risk on. So it was like hedging our bets. And the book you mentioned that came in that we took a risk on very early on uh, in, the, in the life of the company was called Flowers in the Attic. And I'm just mentioning that because I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with it. And we were offered the opportunity to publish it in hardback. And it's still in print and probably lots of you have read it. Um, then after we'd been going a couple of years, I realized I would never be taken seriously as a publisher if I didn't publish nonfiction as well as fiction. So I began to think, what do I know about? Well, I actually didn't know about very much. Um, I hadn't had a university education, and by then I had three children, but I did know a bit about feeding them. So we began to publish some books on cooking, and we began to publish a couple of other books about areas that I was familiar with. And that's how we gradually grew with a mixture of um a mixture of streams of income that were reliable because we'd gradually tested them. So we knew if we published a certain author, we would expect to sell a certain amount of copies and generate a certain amount of income and a balance of risk taking. And as the years went by, we realized that we were very good at um, taking risks as it happens. Um, and we became very good at personal development and business books. And we were known as pioneers in that area. But we were able to take these risks because at the same time, we were always running other books and we knew exactly what they were going to sell. So um, when it comes to research, um, you don't have to research the books that are selling, obviously, because you've got a pretty good idea. Although as with all markets, you never know when the market might suddenly change and that product or service is no longer in fashion. But you've got to be studying the market all the time to see where you might want to take a risk. And you've got to be aware of what other people are doing, but only slightly, because you absolutely don't want to copy other people um, because really that, 
it, it just doesn't make you feel good. We never went out and copied what other people were doing. But if we knew that a certain area was becoming more popular, then we would think, what, to, what kind of book do we want to offer in that area? But I think what's interesting for companies that are developing tech now is that you've got the convergence of all the developments that have been happening over the last 20 years. And I do think this is going to be an incredibly creative and innovative decade because you can put things together in new ways that haven't yet been developed together. Um, and I think people are just going to have the best time creating new products. That, you know, that, that's like nearly all my questions covered in one go. That, that rock, rock solid. I, I, um, I do have, I did have this, uh, impression as I was, as I was listening to the book that you, uh, you and the, the people around you had this, had this kind of image of, it was like a, you were like a group of surfers that are always watching the ocean and you spend ages watching the ocean and then go, oh, let's go for that wave there. Um, there was that, that, does that, does that resonate with you? Um, we were always we were always watching to see what was new. Um, well, first of all, I love watching to see what's new. But in the period um, of the 80s and the 90s, before the internet, it was so much harder to find out what was new. So every year I used to go to the States and very often trends that were very popular in the States came over to the UK, but they didn't always. So sometimes we would sort of, sort of catch a wave if you like try to sail a boat on it and the boat would capsize and um, so um there were books that we tried that did, that when a topic was really massive in the states and I'm, I'm thinking about um codependency that was one so it wasn't that there weren't it wasn't that there weren't problems here about being codependent it's a word that we all understand it wasn't such it wasn't used so much then but we we never had such a huge mass of people going into bookshops and buying codependent books books on codependency as they did in the states so sometimes we got it wrong but then sometimes we got it right um but we were always thinking what are people going to want to read about not just say in 2023 but also in 2024 so what is coming towards us Let's look for it. Let's see what we can create. Let's find the author who's an expert and can write a good book on it. Um, and that's why we were able to take risks and try out new things, because we had this very positive attitude. Um, but also, we didn't have to pay a huge amount. So publishers pay authors, and the more successful the authors are, the more money they get paid. So if an author was writing about a topic that wasn't that well known, then obviously it was a risk for everybody, and we didn't have so much money invested in the product, although we did invest our time because publishing books is very labor intensive. Even publishing ebooks and not creating um, a finished printed book um even that's um pretty labor intensive as any of you who've done it will know so so one thing i just out of pure curiosity is personal curiosity is the, the business book market because that I, I don't remember i mean i've been reading business books non-stop for 15 well in audible anyway um non-stop for 15 years and i've just noticed how 
you know, I spend a lot every day, probably every day for the last 15 years, I've been listening to an audio book and you, in, when you read a book, you find another book and that leads you to all these other things and you, you get to know how that goes. And that, that's particularly exploded in the last decade and, and it's got more diverse and everything like that. But, and then it made me think like, you know, when I used to go into WH Smith's at the end of the nineties to even find a book on productivity was, you know, pretty, pretty rare. So, so when, when did that, business book category hit and what what kind of made it is there anything that happened in the economy at that time that made it happen was it because people were better educated or what, what why what made that category blow up like it did in the uh, 1980s there were business books and they were mainly uh, academic business books and they weren't for the average reader um and at the, at the beginning of the 90s, we had massive changes in society because we had um, a major recession. And this was the first recession where um, many people who had degrees found themselves out of work. And it was the first recession where companies let a lot of people go. And previously, people had felt loyal to the companies they worked for, and that had been reciprocated. Um, but now, at the beginning of globalization, the situation was very different. So what everybody needed to do was to learn new skills, either so they could stay in their jobs by presenting themselves as more skilled than they had been, or so that they would have these new skills, which would enable them to find new jobs. And we at Piatkus, we saw this market and the very first business book that we published, because we, we actually, we, we were always looking to read business books so that we would have more, because both myself and my two co-directors, none of us have been to university. We didn't have an education in running a business. There were very few business books at the time. There were few classes. I mean, it was really hard to go and learn about it. So um, we were interested, we'd read articles in the papers. And the very first business book we published was an American book. It was a large size and it was called The Perfect CV. And this book told people how to write a CV, how to put down their skills in such a way that the employer would recognize and that they would be helpful to the company and would want to interview them. And this book went on to sell thousands and thousands. Um, we also then published a book called Dealing with Difficult People. And gradually we realized there was a massive market for books telling you how to resolve simple problems, books about how to get your money in, books about cash flow, loads of books about sales techniques, books about running meetings better. But interestingly, at the beginning, in, in the middle it wasn't until the end of the 90s, really, that most people began to talk about productivity. Um, and that's probably because most companies weren't familiar with how it might be measured. And again, you've got to remember before computing, it was really difficult to measure data in the way that we do now. So in the 90s, that language wasn't really in use among um, medium-sized companies. Yeah, that, that, that um, when when I was at university about fifteen years ago, I uh, more than that now, um, I got diagnosed with dyslexia, and I I suddenly like realised how to use a calendar, and I had a coach. I was really really lucky to be be very supportive through university, and so basically I had a I had a dyslexic productivity coach who then 
I can't remember. She she introduced me to mind mapping um, and how that would help me think. And then she said, oh, you know, there's different product tools. And I, I can't remember what the first book I used, you know, the productivity book I got was. But um, that led me to just, it wasn't that I wanted to get more productive in a kind of psycho way of getting pumped up, but I just wanted to know how to organize my brain and use my time better. And I remember even like 15 years ago, it was quite hard to find. Um, I think it was like, I, th- I think actually the first, the first thing I read was um, Eat That Frog by Brian Tracy. And, and then it went from there. And I did try getting things done and I really agree with the system, but it just doesn't work for me, which I was devastated with because I could see how it would work, but it, it, it doesn't work for me. Well, um, so just, just before we, we wrap up, um, what, what do you think is like, just before we came on, I said, there seems to be this, um, rush of people looking to either angel invest or invest or just like regular human beings have found out about how they can invest in things. And even in apps like Revolut, you can get into the stock exchange way easier than you ever have been. So where do, where do you think that whole kind of, you, know, you, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, like it's, it's a very exciting time um, for new businesses and startups and scaling and stuff like that. Where, where, where do you think that kind of entrepreneurial boom is now after your, after your experience in this? Well, after I sold my company, um, and one of the things I was talking about at that time because I was doing quite a lot of keynote speaking, was how to sell a company successfully. Um, But I also invested at that time, I'm not currently investing, um, in in quite a few startups. And what I learned was that there is a massive wall of money out there. Um, And certainly since lockdown, um, the wall of money has been increasing over the last 10, 15 years because many people have done very well. The stock market's done well and the price of their properties increased and their salaries have gone up. So there's a lot of money out there and it is, it's exciting. People want to support new ventures. Um, and the real challenge is if you've got the ability to know what a good company looks like at the early stages. So that's being able to judge so many different aspects of the company, you know, how you feel about the people, um, whether they re- whether you get a sense they understand their market, whether they're going to be able to keep their management team or whether the management team's going to be lured away because it's such a difficult time for keeping your staff, all these things. So I really want to say there is a lot of money out there. And in order for you to access that money, you've got to be really good at building your company um, because the people will be able to see whether you're good or whether, you know, you're you're bullshitting. Um, So just try to build the best company you can and learn as much as you can. And, And as you said, Bernie, we all learn, we all take in information in different ways. So understand the way that works best for you, that when you're younger and building a company, you just absorb everything to do with your company it is so exciting um but definitely learn as much as you can about building a great company and keep going back to basics which is 
but you've got to generate the money. And if you want an investor, you're most likely to need to be presenting them with a scalable business because clearly that's more popular. Um, and I wish good luck to everybody because it's not hard. It is very hard, sorry, but it is the most exciting thing you can do in your working life. And even if it doesn't work, it's really important to know that you tried it and you gave it your best shot. I, I think that, that that is huge. That's that's the I hear that a lot and I think it's only in the last few years I've really understood the like internalized, if you like, to the it, it's better to like spend a bit of time trying and it not work than like get to eighty years old and go, Oh, you know, I didn't do anything there's, there's a book um which i i love um which i which i avoided reading because it seemed like really like macho and pumped up it's by a guy called david goggins and he was a navy seal and he's an ultra marathon and everything like that and some somewhere in the, I mean, he still is actually um and he at the end he says you know you can get to the end of your life and you can like look back and see who you could have been and, and you could either like just be sitting on the sofa watching netflix and eating potato chips all day or you could have you know accomplished something amazing whatever that is to you um and i, I think that's like really really important so we're gonna we're gonna end there folks um judy where can we find you in the uh universe <laughs> all right well uh, my website's a bit cluttered at the moment um with features about my book it's um www.judypiakis.com um, my book is called Ahead of Her Time, How a One-Woman Startup Became a Global Publishing Brand. And I do go into a lot of detail about how I build the company, how I built the company, things that worked, things that didn't work. And although I'm talking about publishing, because that's what we did, we published books um, in a time before ebooks as well. Um, I do show how the company grew, what the different challenges were at different stages, and the last four chapters tell you how we exited. It tell you, tells you how we thought about it, how we approached it, and um, how it happened in the way that we wanted it to. That's it. If you, if any of you have been listening, I've been podcasting nonstop for ten years, and I very rarely let someone on to talk about their book because, um, and I just had to record this with judy i absolutely love your style i really really enjoyed your your book judy and i appreciate your time today and folks jump in there to um if you we're on spotify now so if you run to spotify that's probably the best place in the world you can help this podcast by clicking the little like and you can only do that on the mobile app as we found out and also get in the slack channel talk there and whatever you're doing in london be great at it and keep going thank you very much folks thank you